Welcome to this production from College Place United Methodist Church. To find out more about our church, please visit our website at www.collegeplaceumc.org. And now, here's our sermon from Rev. Tab Miller. Well, the, um, I was listening to NPR the other day, and they were reporting on an article that was written in The Atlantic. And it was reported that out of those who give, and that's important to realize, because a lot of people don't give, but out of those who do give, those with lesser means actually give more in terms of percentage of their income than those with greater means, which suggests that there's something within our psychology, something within our our makeup that means when we have more, we want to keep more, and when we have less, we're willing to let it go. I think in part what's going on here is that having less means that you know what it means to live with little, and you know how much it means to be helped, so you want to help. And you also know that it's not the end of life if you just give a little bit more away, if you don't have a lot in the first place. But those of us who have a comfortable life, financially speaking, we know the comfort of prosperity, and indeed it's an enticing comfort. It's not a, there's not a problem with having that comfort, but it's enticing to want to cling to it and make that our hope over other hopes. And I began to wonder what that was all about. Natalie and I were uh, married right after college. And so we were, for the first time, independent of our parents, uh, financially independent. We had to start worrying about things like car insurance and medical insurance, not under our parents' plans anymore, but under our own plans. And you know how that is as a young person. Those things, you know, you see what your parents are paying for you. And you're like, oh, that's great. I can pay that. And then you get, because you're not covered by them, it goes way up. We had to think about things like life insurance and things we'd never really considered before in college and as, as young adults until we got married. We got married, we immediately moved to Kentucky in 2007, and at that time, as it is today, it was very prudent to, if you could afford to do so, to purchase a home over renting a home uh, because you're putting equity into something. When you're renting, you're just throwing money out and it never really comes back. When you purchase a home, you have something with value that when you sell, you'll get some of that value back. And we found a home that we loved. We fell in love with it. It was near some of our closest friends. We began negotiations. And when the owners found out that I was a seminary student, they revealed to us that they too had just finished seminary and that they wanted to bless us. And so they said, we're not going to sell it to you at what it appraises for. We're going to sell it to you for what we owe on it, which was considerably less. So we were elated to find out we had built-in equity when we bought the home. Built-in equity. We could have turned around and sold it the next day and made money. Not a, not a ton of money, but we could have. Of course, you know, that was in 2007, so what was coming? The housing market bubble burst. We weren't too worried about it. Natalie and I had good jobs, and uh, the economy didn't hurt us in our jobs. We had to keep our jobs. But a few years later, we had something special. <laughs> We had our little Audrey, and it was time to get home. Let's get back to our parents. Natalie was desperate to get back home near our parents. I was too. I didn't have, I had just graduated seminary. I didn't have that to distract me anymore. All our friends moved away because we all graduated together. And so we put our sign out in the yard, and within a matter of days, not weeks, days, 
we were, in, we were in a town home, and the unit on our left and the unit on our right, there were signs out in the yard. All three of our houses were set for sale. In our, on our street alone, there was over 30 homes for sale. In our neighborhood, there was over 100 homes for sale. It was bonkers. And we were, <laughs> we were a little worried about that. Uh, but we rented it out. We finally found some renters, and we rented it out. Uh, and we eventually did sell it when the market turned around. Um, we sold it for uh, less, or we sold it for what it appraised for at the time, which was less than what it appraised for when we first bought it, actually less than what we purchased it for. But all said and done, we didn't lose too much money because we had had renters, and, and yet we became, Natalie and I became keenly aware of how fragile money can be, how fragile that comfort can be, especially in times where renters would move out and we're paying a mortgage there in Kentucky, 10 hours away, and rent here in Glen County, and we, we, were, we didn't know what we were going to do, um, we began to realize that the power of a dollar can change very quickly. Markets can be fragile. And so when people started coming up to us, and there's a lot of great nonprofits around this area. There's a lot of great nonprofits. I actually work for one. Uh, besides working here, actually, you know, I work on the Navajo Reservation and try to raise money. But when people come and ask us for money at that time, I can remember that fear that would creep up in me. And I'd say, I just want to clutch a little bit tighter onto that money. Hold on a little bit tighter. And so what I'm trying to say this morning is I think that greed doesn't just stem from being, being inherently a greedy person. I think oftentimes greed can be born out of fear. And God has compassion for those in fear. And this is precisely why he asks us to give. Because as we give, we learn to fear less and trust more. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look at chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They, are, they like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich, rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has done more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This is God's word, and I hope it will penetrate our hearts this morning and bring us blessing. Before we actually discuss the exact meaning of the text this morning, which can be more complicated than we think, I want to talk about how important Mark seems to think this story is. To this point, Jesus has been frustrating the leaders of Israel. They've worked to trap Jesus to get him to say things so they could maybe get rid of him, you know, exile him, kill him, do something, get rid of this man. And he's not giving them much time. Instead, he has been out in the countryside tending to the masses, to the sinners, to the poor, to the weak, to the lame, to those in need. He's been out in the country not rubbing elbows with those in Jerusalem, not going to their great debates, not interacting with them in this way. And every time they find him out there somewhere in his ministry... 
they ask him these straightforward questions and they begin to press down on him, trying to get him to say something so that they can get rid of him. And what he does is he, instead of giving them straightforward answers, he frustrates them by giving them questions to their questions or giving parables to a yes or no question. Yes or no, Jesus. And then he says, let me tell you a story. What this does, on, on one hand, is it frustrates them because he knows what game they're playing. But what it also does for them is it causes them to think. This is a mercy of Jesus because the questions and the stories they have to go home with and sit on and think about. What could this mean? What does it mean to talk about the kingdom of God in this way? And maybe by turning these things over in their heads and not just getting the straight yes or no, perhaps they'll learn something. So this is what he does. He, he plays this little game with them. That is until he's ready for them to do it to him as they wish. He is now, when we're reading this story, he is now in Jerusalem. He is in the center of those who want to kill him. And he's observing them as they're observing him. And he's pushing their buttons. This story comes at the end of Jesus' ministry. After he's finished his itinerant preaching, he's prepared his ministry to go into the hands of the disciples, and now he is facing those who would oppose his good news, and he's admonishing them, knowing that when he speaks straight clearly to them, they're going to have him killed. When he acts against them, he's going to have, they're going to have him killed. And here he is acting against them, talking down about them and praising those who are not like them. This is one of the stories that actually stokes the flames of his assassination. It won't be long now that they'll come in the darkness of night and they'll put him on trial and hang him on a cross. Can you believe that a teaching on generosity would be one of the reasons Jesus is put to death? Giving. Taking a little bit out of our money and giving. This is what it's all about. Actually, we'll see that the story is not about money, it's about the heart. But this is why the Bible warns us about the love of money. Not money itself, the love of money. It says, the Bible tells us that a camel can easily pass through an hour, more easily pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Because what the love of money does, what greed does at its roots, is it makes me think about me and I and, and about what I can do for myself and what I can have. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is about the body of Christ, which is all of us, going out and giving to the world. Greed turns us inward, which is exactly the opposite of where the gospel should turn us, which is outward to the world. And Mark says of those who are greedy, who think about me, not only do they hoard their stuff, then they flaunt themselves out in public. Mark says through Jesus, or Jesus says to the gospel of Mark perhaps, these men will be punished most severely. We often say in times of great atrocity, we see someone do something uh, heinous, and we say things like, there's a special place in hell for someone like that. You've heard that saying, and actually, it's exactly what Mark seems to be saying, or Jesus seems to be saying. He says, and I don't know exactly what this means, but greedy people anger God, and this means that their severity of punishment will be different. It'll be very severe. So now that we see the severity of what's going on here, we know that there's a warning to all of us through this. What is Jesus teaching? How do we ensure that we're not a greedy people? And here we are, we're in the temple courts here. So this has something to do with religion and politics, all sorts of stuff. So do we try to extrapolate all this and bring it into our nation, into our churches? What do we do with this? How do we decide if we're doing what's right? Now, when it comes to modern thought, ancient culture is not a one-to-one -one ratio. 
Because they did it doesn't mean we have to do it. Because they didn't do it doesn't mean we don't get to do it. We don't get to compare ourselves to the ancients and say it's exactly one-to-one. Our job is to look at what's going on in the situation and ask, what is Jesus getting at? What is the heart of the matter? And how do we apply that to our lives? Some have actually taken this and tried to make it very political, arguing over money and what the Bible does and doesn't say. Some are quick to say, well, the Bible is clear that you know, we should give, and therefore we're going to put that on our government. We're going to tax everybody, and that way everybody's giving, and we don't even have to think about it. Others are saying no. The Bible is clear. The government doesn't have a right to everything I possess. I get to give freely from myself. It is my money. I decide. And the biblical characters would look at us in our, in our modern situation and go, don't ask me. Don't look at me. How do we get to the heart of the matter? Should we tax? I don't know. That's a political discussion. That's not really a religious discussion. But if we're going to try to strong arm the Bible into it, I would say that Jesus' argument here doesn't give us a lot of credence to do so. He is asking us, To look at the heart. What is being given from the heart? Taxes are paid out of obligation. If we make people do things that are good, it doesn't get them any closer to the kingdom of God. It's about what's in the heart. 2 Corinthians tells us in chapter 9, verse 7, Each of you must give. It's an obligation. But as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, which is what taxes are, for God loves that you're a forgiver. On the other hand... To those who would say, this is my money, I get to do with it as I see fit. There's a lot of I in that, a lot of me, a lot of me there. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 17, that all good gifts come from God. The Bible is very clear that anything good that you have is not your own. It is given to you by God, even if you worked hard for it. God gave you the ability to work hard for it. It's not yours to do with it what you will. You have to be good stewards of what God gives you. So where is the balance in all this? I think the bottom line for us this morning, and this is not an easy answer, because I can't give you from biblical example an equation that you can go home with and decide how much you should give of your time, your talents, and your tithes. The bottom line is Jesus argues that the answer lies within your heart. Because God judges not outwardly appearances. He's not looking at the amount on the check. He's not hearing the clank in the plate He's looking at what's going on in your heart as you give to him. Now, just a word of warning. Jesus has this uncanny ability to see into the hearts of human beings that we don't have. This was a gift given to him. He was using the Holy Spirit. He could see into their lives. You and I cannot look at our neighbor and say, that person gives enough, that person doesn't give. Or if I give more than him, I know I'm doing better than they are. There's no, there's no comparison here. This text is about ourselves reflecting on ourselves. Even as Jesus points to the scribes and the widow, he has to point out to his disciples what's going on in their hearts. They're not the ones that decide that. Jesus says, this is what's going on in their hearts. And by comparison, what does that mean for you? And Jesus says, look, I want you to know that what's going on in your heart is what you'll be judged on. Judgment is coming. And you might want to say, well, preacher, you're laying it on pretty thick on Commitment Sunday, aren't you? You're asking us to give, and you're talking about this, this story of giving, and now you're, you're putting on this, all, all this talk about judgment as we decide what we're going to put on our commitment cards. And I will say this to you. This morning in this part of the text, and, and by the way, this was actually the assigned text reading. It just happened to fall on Commitment Sunday, which is, I think, great. But it makes me sound like I'm kind of pushing the envelope a little bit. But as we talk about judgment this morning, I want to say this to you. I don't want you to give in to fear. 
I want you to give out of joy. So the stewardship campaign that we have and the commitment cards that are sitting in your seats, they can wait. Let's not think about that right now. Let's wait until a little later on in the sermon. Because I don't want you to give out of fear. But I do want you to realize what is being said here. The Bible isn't saying that you're going to be punished based on what you do and do not give alone. The Bible is saying that what you give is an indication of the condition of your heart. We oftentimes, uh, in the medical fields uh, in, our, in our world, medical professionals will look at vital signs to see how your organs are doing that are nowhere near your organs. So they want to look, see what your heart's doing. Sometimes they put a cuff on your arm. That, you know, to an ancient, that would be like, what? Hey, I'm going to see how your heart's doing. I'm going to put this thing around your arm. Oh, your heart's doing okay. Oh, no, you have high blood pressure. Or they feel your pulse on your wrist. Or they take some blood from your arm. And all this stuff they do in your, on your arm, they tells you about your heart. And the same red flags or similar red flags can be part of our looking into our spiritual health. A foul tongue, a flaming temper, a vengeful action are indications of spiritual disease. And likewise, our attitude when we give, our attitudes when we give can be an indication of where our heart is. Israel knew this greatly. Israel knew this to be the fact. I want to read a few selective readings from the first chapter of Isaiah and, and draw out some things that are going on for Israel. Listen to this. God says in the first chapter of Isaiah, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. What to me is the multitude of their sacrifices? I've had enough of their offerings. Trample my courts no more. Bringing offerings is futile. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. See, because just like the scribes, as you read on in this chapter, you'll find that the Israelites are given to God so that they might be blessed. They haven't learned that the truest blessing, the truest joy, is not to be worried about yourself, but to trust God with your joy completely and to be outward focused towards the world. See, that's the blessing here. The judgment, yeah, there's judgment here, but there's also great blessing. The reason you're being judged is because God says, I want something better for you. I want you to have the joy that comes in trusting in me. This isn't about me just saying, you're not giving to me. I don't need anything from you. I'm trying to do this for you. So what are the consequences for Israel? Isaiah says, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. What is God looking for? Here it is. Remove the evil of your doing from before me. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Take care of those who can't take care of themselves. God is saying to, to us, I have called you to a life of sacrifice, not just so that you can pat yourself on the back. I've called you to celebrate my ministry, not just so you can say, isn't everything great for me? I'm doing these things to orient you to a life of service to those in need. And if you don't get that, I don't want anything of your offering. I don't want anything of your celebrations. I don't care about them. They burden me. I'd rather you not. So just stop. Unless you know how to treat others with justice, goodness, and mercy flowing out of your worship, flowing out of your giving. giving. The bottom line is God saying, I want a heart turned away from selfishness. And I want a heart turned away from a what can I get from God sort of attitude by my doing, my works. And I just want you to trust that I have you in my hands no matter what. And then I want you to take that trust and go out and serve those who are lost in the world. Unfortunately for us, there is a soft prosperity gospel that exists in almost all churches in America today. The prosperity gospel, we kind of reject, a lot of us reject. It's that 
you know, claim it and it'll be yours. If God, if you, God wants you to have a million dollars, and if you just believe hard enough, he'll give it to you. Those preachers who say, God wants me to have a private airplane, and I, I'm calling you to give me my private airplane. By the way, if you want to give me something like that, that's fine. But that's not what God's calling you to do. God's not calling you to that. But we have a soft prosperity gospel that says this. I have because I deserve, and they don't have because they did something wrong. We look at the poor, and we judge them, and this text is telling us not to do that. Don't judge the poor. Jesus was asked, actually, of the blind man at the pool of Bethesda, who sinned? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus tells his disciples, you're looking at it all wrong. We have flaws in this world. We have flaws in ourselves, not just because we sin, but because we live in a fallen world. And what we should see in this person is not what did they do wrong. What we should see in them is opportunity. Jesus says, the person, this man was born blind so that God could be glorified, and then he went and healed him. When we see someone in need, we can go to them, and by blessing them, we bring glory and honor to God. Jesus says in Matthew 25, Then he will say to those at his left hand, You're accursed. Depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and for his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, or no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he'll answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do it for me. So, we can look at those in need and we can judge them and we can pass them by. I'd rather say to God, Lord, I thought I was giving to you, maybe I wasn't, than say, I thought thought that that wasn't you and I passed you by. God is looking at our hearts. The scribes are giving large sums of money and it didn't amount to much and the widow is here giving, giving the greatest gift of all. She's giving gladly out of a sacrificial standpoint. No amount of money brings her joy. It's the joy in the Lord that she has in her trust that brings her closer to God. She's able to give it all away because she knows what that draws her into. I'll say this really quickly because this is uh, Commitment Sunday. There's something else Jesus is looking at. He's watching the religious elite as they give their money. He's watching the temple, and he's going to let the temple fall because it's corrupt, and he's going to replace it. But as he sat there, he watched those who took the money, and he, he had some pretty choice words about them. As a church, we too have to hear that. As leaders of the church, I want to tell you that as you give, as we ask you to give, we prayerfully will honor your gifts, so help us God, or else we'll be judged. So no, we want you to trust us. So we've talked a lot about money today, but I would be remiss on a day like a day to not say that giving gives, giving comes in many, many ways. This is just an example. The money happening in the temple, that was just an example. But today we also celebrate our veterans who teach us, as J.D. so rightfully and eloquently put for us, they shame us in their giving sometimes. Whatever, I could put in a, whatever money I could put into a plate that go off and help people, it really is shamed by people who are willing to put their very life on the line. And God calls us to give all of our heart away. There is no law against love. So give all, if you don't want to be judged, give all the love you can away because there is no law against it. He's wanting us, as veterans do, to give everything. And what that means, it means your tithes, your talents, your time, but it also means whatever God has put in your heart. 
So as the band comes back up, this morning, um, if you are a, a member of this church or a longtime attender, we would ask you, if you're giving, to, to give us an estimate of your giving so that we can know in the year ahead uh, what we can be expecting. There are some at the end of your pew, or at the end of the chairs in your H row. There's an estimate of giving card. There's also, if you don't have one in your seat, there's some in the back. As we sing this last song, J.D.'s going to put a basket up front, and you can come and lay your, your, your uh, estimate of giving in that as a form of worship. You might not be able to add a wing to this building. We don't need another wing. We've got plenty of room down that hallway. You might not be able to send 50 kids to camp. You might not be able to buy the greatest tech so we can be the flashiest church ever. But if you give, give from the heart gladly and give from a place of trust. And then you've done what God has called you to do. We hope that you'll trust in the mission of College Place. Because God's at work here. I really do believe that. But regardless of whether you give here or somewhere else, make sure you're serving the kingdom of God because God is watching. And the greatest reward that you'll get from this is what the widow has. It comes from giving. We have fear in our lives. And when we give, we learn to trust more. She did not need any accolades. No one had to look at her. No one was watching her except for Jesus. She didn't need the pat on the back like the scribes got. She knew that giving builds joy because giving away what we have and not clinging to that as our hope gives us more trust in God. It reminds us of his promises to us. It reminds us that we rely not on ourselves but on God and that draws us into more joy. So this is really us calling you to find that joy in God. Find the joy in giving. Find it wherever you are. This altar is open. Come and pray to God about what you want to give. Fill out the card if you want to commit and lay it in the basket. But whatever you do, make sure you learn what it means to trust in God fully with all of your life, with all of your giving. And may that bring great joy to you this day and every day. This has been a production of College Place United Methodist Church. May God bless you richly upon hearing this message.